We return in this episode to the critical issue of identity again. In the last episode, we sorted out a more robust view of male identity and masculinity based on men in the Bible and the character of God. But now we want to move forward and probe our new identity in Christ as men. Again, I want to remind us of the nature of the heroic tales. They almost always contain this component of the hero discovering who he really is. And it's not who he thought he was at the beginning of the tale. Something striking has happened to him as he takes up his quest. He tastes the true man he really is. He tastes it and starts to own it for himself. One of the most well-known examples of this is Frodo in Lord of the Rings. He thinks he's just a common hobbit, a nephew of the rather eccentric Bilbo. But that's not who he really is. Who he really is comes clear to him as the one ring of power comes to him and he chooses to go to Mordor and destroy it. He discovers that he is the ring bearer. Even though a most unlikely candidate, he is the one who has been chosen for this task. As the story proceeds, he slowly owns this identity until it becomes himself. I think this is a good parallel to discovering our identity in Christ as men. We think we are one thing, but Jesus sees us differently and calls us out according to that identity. We are to hear his calling and slowly own this new identity as our true selves. Here's another way to look at it. Our identity is far too mysterious to unravel by ourselves, but the energy behind so much of what men do is trying to figure out on their own who they are. I know I spent years doing this by trying on different jobs and careers, hoping it would answer the question of identity. Through my time as a musician, a youth minister, a church planner, a high school Bible teacher, a running coach, and an author, I kept hoping that one of these would finally solve the riddle of my identity. But I was mistaken from the start. There is only one who truly knows me, and that's the one who created me. And only he knows who I truly am. We find this process happening in the Bible in the stories of renaming. Abram, the exalted father, becomes Abraham, the father of many. Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God and overcomes. Simon, the unstable and unfaithful disciple, becomes Peter, the rock of the new church. The new name was a new identity. When a man becomes a Christ believer, he too was given a new identity as a man. Listen to some of the identity statements from the New Testament put in the first person. I am the beloved Son of God. I am forgiven and washed clean. I can never be condemned in Christ. I can never be separated from His love. I have the righteousness of Christ. I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. I am an heir with Christ. I am no longer a slave to fear. I have authority over the demonic. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. When a man begins to own these as his true self, a revolution takes place inside of him. He begins to experience how Jesus really sees him, and he now enters the battle of living in that true identity on a daily basis. I'm Bill Delvo, and this is Heroic, a podcast about the surprising path to true manhood. 
As we move from a masculine perspective on our identity to a theological one, we'll have Scotty Smith joining us. Scotty is the former pastor of Christ Community Church, now an adjunct professor at Covenant Seminary, and author of numerous books, including The Reign of Grace, Restoring Broken Things, and Everyday Prayers. Scotty has an incredibly facile mind when it comes to theology, but is combined with a humble and honest heart. It's a great combination when we come to this topic. Scotty now will be discussing how we solve the riddle of our identities, the things that have shaped our identities in the past, and our experiences of awakening to our true identities in Christ. It's amazing to say that I've known Scotty for 40 years. When he first moved to Nashville, I was the first ministry intern he worked with. I still remember Scotty's unusual hairstyles, his Birkenstocks, and his uncanny ability to make up new words in the English language. I don't think he makes up any words in our conversation, but he did surprise me with his stories and insights. Scotty, so glad you're here with us to talk about identity. Let's start here. Um, just tell some of your own story of trying to figure out your identity on your own. Where did that take you? Uh, first of all, Bill, it's great to be with you. Yeah. I mean, a 40-year friendship is something we share, so great to have this and, conversation. And I don't have a lot of friends who, are, who I've known for 40 years, so it is great to have you here. When I think about identity for me, I go back to some of the more formative experiences in life that really shaped me more than any other. And, and obviously, a lot of the things that we discover that were identity, we see looking back through the lens of God's grace. For me, I can understand now, Bill, many years later, that um, what defined me early on in my identity was um, orphan child, mom died when I was 11 years old, killed in a car crash, mm -hmm. a father that disappeared who could not enter into my heart. So there was a real sense of being an orphan in my own home. Uh, years later, I would discover a heart wound earlier than that that defined me maybe even more critically than that loss of a parent. A chapter of sexual abuse when I was eight years old that had set in motion this radical confusion about masculinity. Right. And so so really looking back, you know, these are two things that stand out to me that I can see now. now I certainly attributed others to many different things and the confusion of mm -hmm. where we're young and we start thinking about who am I really, but below the waterline of my heart, these two big heart wounds really set in motion the chaos and the grasping and the trying to mm -hmm. evade being marked as orphan and broken little guy clueless about masculinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, damaged goods, mm -hmm. as I've heard some people say. Yeah. Where did that end up taking you as you reached young manhood and, you know, sort of entered in there? What, what did you end up grasping well, at? Well, for sure, early on, when you consider, um, you know, when we really become aware of wounds rather than just circumstances, uh, predictably so, a theme of comfort. Where are you going to go for comfort yeah. if you're hurt? You know, as an 11-year-old kid, the first place I began to go was food, just because I, you know, I discovered comfort food before they even called it comfort <laughs> that's food. Right, that's right. So carbohydrates and sugar became yeah. my friend. So uh, trying to find a sense of just 
okayness in that world. Yeah. And of course, that marked me physically. I added weight on, inherited a nickname Meatball. So, mm. you know, all the things we do yeah. that ultimately will not bring us to grace are going to fail us. But in early on, that was one. And then the theme of of the shame of being considered, you know, kind of rotundo little boy, lost weight and learned to exercise. So then I became disciplined kid that could, and then in time, um, joining a band as a junior in high school and playing, you know, in a traveling rhythm and blues band. You were the rock star. I was a rock rock star, you know, moment where, which unfortunately involved chapter of abusing a lot of alcohol just to further to numb the pain. So a lot, a lot of, a lot of 11 through 18-year-old journeying that really, you know, was temporary at best in giving relief. Yeah. So let's move to awakening to that true identity. How did that start to happen in your life, your true identity in Christ? And how did that start to to change you? Mm. Well, my story, Bill, as you will remember, um, like you, I grew up in the church before there was any sense of just relationship with God. I mean, I had an assumed spirituality. The church I grew up in in North Carolina was neither conservative or liberal. It was just Southern. You just go to church. <laughs> you just assume church. everybody Part of the knows God you because yeah. you're in America or something. <clears throat> you eat fried but, chicken, you go to church. Absolutely. <laughs> but a friend of mine as a senior in high school <clears throat> came to Christ in a way that I had no categories for, and he invited me to go. He actually drugged me to a Billy Graham movie where I heard in my heart, something that maybe I heard the words before, but it landed on my heart, and that was the beginning of finding that God was someone to be known personally through the work of Jesus. And that was starting a journey that for sure brought a sense of relief of guilt, but it would be quite some time before that would begin to take me into confronting the shame. As you well know, guilt and shame are not the same thing. They are. Why don't you explain the difference real quickly? Well, fortunately, as a senior in high school, to know that the finished work of Christ took care of my guilt, that really the cross was something that did not reveal an angry God, but a God who was so perfectly loving in his holiness and, and intimacy that he had to do something for me that would, you know, that would really secure a relationship. So I really believed early on um, at age 18 that my guilt hadn't been taken care of. Guilt says I've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Shame says I am wrong. Right. Something's wrong with me. And, you know, I mentioned these two heart wounds that would only be confronted much later in life. That That journey, however, I was thankful that I was a forgiven person. Now, right. I mean, that's a huge thing a in and of itself. Thing. Yes. It's wonderful. And to believe that that forgiveness was connected to a God that did love me. And again, that was very fitful in coming to know that. What do we mean to say, I get to go to heaven when I die versus there's mm-hmm. a God who loves me? Right. And that was a, been a, that's been a real journey. Yeah. So, and talk about that journey of learning to own your true identity instead of shame being your identity. I know when I met you, you were a young minister and you got me involved in an internship that set me on the route to ministry. But how did what how did that truth begin to seep into the shame category? That that shame is not my identity. This is my core. Right. Identity. Well, you know, fortunately, again, 40 years walking with you, when you first met me, uh, and I use this metaphor cuz I think it's helpful. 
I had, when we met, I had a, a, a good, robust understanding of the lyric of the gospel. You know, in other words, I had been to seminary and learned a lot of important truth about identity. But you can have the lyric and not have the music. And so our journey together in <laughs> yeah. many ways, Bill, yes. has been well, how so. does learning the narrative, the true story that the Bible's telling, how – and we want to know that story, right? We don't want to live by myth. We want to know something yes. needs to be true. And there so is a lyric. There is we, an actual we, we, lyric. But, you know, there's more than a lyric sheet. And I think for <laughs> me, I was enticed by how beautiful that lyric is. But yeah. moving into the music – and the dance, you know, um, that's been the journey, and that's involved friendships involved. Like when I think about your, you know, our friendship, how little we knew about our own hearts. We were both alive with a redemptive suspicion that God was better than we knew him to be. <laughs> but it was going to involve, as, you know, all identity does, look at the labels that define you more than you realize, yes. hear the claims of this gospel that need to go head to heart. And I think the journey of head to heart, lyric to music, involves uh, you know, learning to become comfortable in our brokenness, to be mm-hmm. able to find people safe enough to begin to say, uh, uh, you smell like you might be able to sustain some of what's going on with me. So God was gracious to me to put into my life some people that fortunately you know, began to invite me to the dance as the music would come to my heart of this true mm-hmm. lyric. Mm-hmm. And learning learning to, I love yeah. that analogy of entering the music because it is different than reading the lyric sheet. Oh, it's it very, is. very, very different. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's just, it's a way of being instead of just a way of knowing. Well, and that's why, you know, to me, when I think of identity, of course, you and I could, we could pull out a passport and we could show legal documentation but I think what you and I both discovered, Bill, is that um, even in this good news that we would discover together, Christ does not only forgive us, but gives us his righteousness. A legal transaction yeah. takes place, right? So there's a lyric there that we are not just forgiven. Uh, good news of Jesus is not a new start or simply a second chance or second chance. Something happens, but it's connected relationally. So I think that that theme of identity needs to be here here's truth about me but look at who the one is that's speaking this truth he is a father that wants to reparent me the orphan the orphan exactly so i mean i i had far more robust a better theology than legalism and pragmatism when you know when you met me but really letting that seep in, you know, that music, that's, that's, the, that's what we're talking about here. Right. Every man's struggle, it you is. know. Yeah, those deeper things. And, yeah. and since you mentioned that, about the righteousness of Christ, I, I listed a number of identity statements. And I'm curious, is there one or two out of that list? Or maybe there's another identity statement. There are many in the, in the New Testament, those truths, that for you have been particularly powerful or centering for you, or healing? Well, yes, all the above. Uh, Once again, when you and I met, I was walking earlier in the relationship with my spiritual father that you met, Jack Miller. And of course, for Jack, he was the one that introduced me really most profoundly to the idea of the gift or the imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness. 
that's just something I missed growing up. I just, again, thought we got a clean slate when we become Christians. But, you know, to, to think about righteous in Christ, you know, that was a theme of our, that was something I missed, that, that I don't get a clean slate, that actually the slate gets filled up with every good thing Jesus did for us, right. not just in his death, but in his life. Right. So I needed to see that, first of all, biblically to be true, and then that needed to become existentially connected in my heart. And once again, Jack made that great, Jack Miller made that great connection between justification and adoption. So you're not just legally okay to go home without fear someone's going to get you. You're going home with your father that created the universe that gave you an original dignity hmm. that you need to smell and taste. And now through redemption knows you, loves you, and has started a process in you that he will complete. So that, that whole uh, nexus, if that's the right word, that redemptive vortex of getting truth, replacing wrong ways of thinking about God, but in community, in community. And uh, you'll remember when we were walking, Bill, and the, that intern family, you know, prayer was an important part of getting that from head into heart. So we would study scripture, we would read dynamics of spiritual life, we, we were learning good stuff, but we knew we've got to be doing this in the context of a Godwardness of walking, praying, and I think, when again, I think about you, I think you're one of the gifts to me in that journey, mm. but we've been in discovery mode together, but it's involved all those kinds of elements. We sometimes refer to them as disciplines, but they need to be seen as means of grace, right? Because that's what we really the grace were hungry comes for. Them. The grace comes through them. Absolutely. Yeah, they're not ends in themselves. Talk about the idea, and it, as I was listening to you, it seemed like that righteousness of Christ, that's that deep work for your guilt. But as I'm listening to you, it's, it sounds like that sense of, I'm a beloved son. Yes. Is that deep work for shame? Yes. So can you can you talk about how that sense of being yeah. an adopted beloved son, how that has, how that's been growing on you? Absolutely. Like, like that statement. Well, and, it, and it, as it continues, you and I both know the most core sin we have is unbelief. And I think when Christ comes back or we go to be with him, first words out of our mouth is going to be, it really was true, <laughs> because we're still suspicious of something so love soaked. So for me, back to this theme of Christ's righteousness, you know, and knowing God as Father taking on guilt and shame, I, I really did need to be convinced that Christ's righteousness and forgiveness was not just a metaphor, it was actual. It's kind of like, you know, we've heard stories in recent years of people that live in North and South Dakota who were very, very poor having someone knocking on the door saying, um, you've got gas reserves on your property. Oh, you yeah. actually, you know, I'd like to pay you $400,000 a year just to lease the right to get the gas off your property. People living not knowing legally what is theirs, right. but treasure. then someone says, you can enjoy that now. Hmm. I think that somewhat captures Bill, I think, for me and for you. Uh, we, we needed to know, here's what is legally entitled to us. We really are actually forgiven and righteous in Christ, and nothing can change that that's objective to us. But we needed the Holy Spirit to knock on our doors saying, hey, guess what? It really is true. It really is yours. Come out and play. Spend some of that grace 
capital because you know <laughs> enjoy it enjoy it and you know and we see that do we not in Luke 15 speaking of the dance of the gospel you know self-righteousness can keep us distanced from the music of the gospel and acting out destructively thinking anybody but the father can fulfill my needs but the goal is going to be getting on to the floor of a party that the father's throwing and he's the chief dancer out there and that movement it's not once and for all because we see it taste it we practice it but then um because of brokenness we do default you know those other voices those other identities those some of those old identities we have especially shame are so rooted into what normalcy looks like is kind of hard to imagine. Right. We can't emote. What is it like to live with that shame? In fact, one of my Absolutely. pictures of heaven is like, what would it be like if no shame? Like, it's gone. Like, it's completely, completely erased. Completely gone. It's like, I, I, can't, I can't wrap my head around that yet. Well, isn't it a unique statement that the Bible actually begins with a negative statement that's the most glorious positive of our first parents, Adam and Eve, as Moses writes that story, describing the beauty of Eden, he said, and they were both naked and felt no shame. That nakedness is before the gaze of God. Right. But he had to use a negative to make a positive. Right. No shame meant that shame has entered the world. Yeah. So imagine that we're made for sh- uh, shame-free nakedness that we will enjoy fully one day, but in God's grace now can come alive too even before heaven. Yeah, it's instead of being fully known and feeling fully exposed, I'm fully known and fully enjoyed. Like what is that? Delighted in, well, it's why for me, back to identity, and again, we see these things, as you know, sometimes through good counseling and community and pondering and more grace, but as I look back, the, the one image of identity that I settled into for years that functioned, and you knew me during these years, was that scene in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, You know, when Oz is behind the curtains. I love this image. Go ahead. Well, you know, Oz is, for all practical purposes, a helpful being. He wants to get Dorothy home. He wants to give courage and a brain and all these kinds of things. But that picture of when they're in the Emerald City and and when Oz finally gets to be known as an ordinary guy mm-hmm. who's balding, who's just got a lot of buttons he's pushing, <laughs> but you know the, the little levers, the little know, levers, the great and power of Oz. <laughs> but but you know Dorothy, when she follows Toto in behind the curtains, it's not like you deceive me. It's almost more like, well, come on out here with the rest of us. We'll yeah. figure this out. Yeah, let's do it together. So I think that's really what you know the gospel is all about. That's we great. don't have to hide behind curtains yeah. and, and we take on personas. And I felt more comfortable as a pastor for years doing things for Jesus than being with Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's a part of the, that continuum of identity. Uh, can I really sit still and let you love me? Uh, yeah. Is there something I need to do? Oh, yeah, surely. Yeah. Uh, Got to do something here. You know, I've been more comfortable being Martha than being Mary yeah. so much in my life. Mm. But. Let's uh, let's go here. Staying and because you've, you're already on this topic, um, our default modes are still very strong. Staying rooted in our identity is a daily battle. So, what's helped you fight the battle? What's helped you keep rooted in that as a daily reality? Well, um, back to fortunately, good spiritual parenting. Jack Miller taught me the discipline of preaching the gospel to my heart. Yeah. I need to hear the lyric. You know, I mean, I like you. I love music. I've got I've got music out jog to or whatever so i love 
filling my chambers of my thinking and my sonic laboratory of my heart with all kinds of music, I need the gospel every day. I need the lyric and the music. So, you know, we used this language earlier, Bill, um, when the spiritual disciplines can become not a means of righteousness or earning, but a means of grace. So, you know, for me, that involves intentional quiet reflection. Mm. It involves relationships. Yeah. You know, as an introvert, as a five on the Enneagram, as an INTP, <laughs> I default to being I'm with you, baby. Very I'm with you alone. all the way. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I've I've had to realize, no, a part of this part of the strategy of darkness is alienation and isolation. Right, right. So I've had to have intentional friendship that I could participate in without controlling because that's been a part of the journey of, if I can do something for you, I can still hold you right. at bay. I've needed to have friends that don't give a flying Houdini about my theology, my big <laughs> vocabulary. They just want to get out and play. Yeah, can we just have fun? Exactly, so that's, that's been a, You can't dance and control the dance. No, you can't, and that, that even looking back, we've never even talked about this. So look back on you and Bill Arts as a look back on other friends that we have in those early years. I was more comfortable being y'all's teacher than really doing stuff with y'all. And that's just been a part of the journey. That was a part of what God even used in my heart to say, why do I need them to do the contact work with the kids because I'm more comfortable in this posture because I can control the pose. I can control mm. control the exposure. What if I'm not really competent in areas like everybody else is? Can I sustain the shame or the guilt that goes with that? Mm. And in time, I could. That's fighting that daily battle. Fighting. Oh, it is. Preaching and, the gospel to yourself over and over. What's my true identity? And and with people that are comfortable, um, that share the heartbeat and hear the story that you're telling through your writings bill and through your mentoring and through your podcast you, you know your your safe voice for people that are beginning to say he's not just telling me something to do he's inviting me to come something that smells more like life than one more chance to fail mm -hmm. but we've had to learn that together yes yes and always through tears and hurt and difficult things like marriage and, and parenting right. and confusion <laughs> and processing and exhaustion you know, exhaustion and, <laughs> and looking you know back at how maybe we weren't raised in the ideal home and but but not looking for stories of excuse but stories of of understanding right because that's where growth takes place not that's in right. blaming people right. but in being able to say this is my story forgiving them yes and then being able to forgive ourselves absolutely Scotty, this has been so good. It's just so wonderful to have you here and just to talk in these terms. Thanks oh. for just sharing your story. And, My honor, Bill. I mean, we're, you know, we're, I'm not the abstract guy that walked in off the street that simply, you know, uh, doesn't know you. We have 40 years 40 of years. beauty and brokenness together. And it's a gift that, you know, people would pay a lot of money for that kind of privilege that we've shared. Well, Lord willing, maybe we'll have another 20 or 30. Amen. Amen. Here, here. This has been Heroic. Join us for the next episode as we turn to the topic of the quest and what happens when a man awakens to his quest. If you're enjoying the Heroic podcast, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend who might want to listen in. Rating and word of mouth are the best ways to get the word out. You might also like my book, Heroic, The Surprising Path to True Manhood. Heroic will give you what you need to take the journey to become a man. It will help you find your guide for the journey, own your true identity, 
and discover your quest. This is how we become truly heroic. Go to heroicbook.com for more information and to order a copy. That's heroicbook.com.